Blog Talk Radio. We're
everybody. How are you today? Bobby Rodrigo, I take liberty with my coffee. Coming at you this morning on the first day of Hemp History Week, essentially. Uh, and we're going to do something really special this week on that. You know, <laughs> well, of course, a lot of craziness. Had a little issue getting in here this morning, but we're here now, and, and we have a fantastic guest. Coming on a show, we're going to talk about all things cannabis and prohibition and what's going on in Georgia with the new executive director of Peachtree Normal of Georgia, Tom McCain. I'm looking forward to that discussion. Tom is a friend and a colleague and really glad that he is now involved in this fight for justice, essentially. Um, also, of course, uh, replacing the phenomenal, the great Sharon Revert, who was the executive director of Peachtree Number, but also a fantastic friend and and colleague, and and of course there's a, there's a little bit of, well, I don't know, certainly a sadness, uh, you know, that Sharon has uh, stepped down from being an executive director of Peachtree Normal, but of course we. All support her decision, and, and you know she has been the front line of the fight, along with all her, along the, along with the other people from Peachtree Normal. Sharon has led the fight for a number of years. So the executive director of Peachtree Normal has ever had, uh, and a fantastic lady. And of course, she's still involved uh, and going to be helping and fighting still. That's not going to change, obviously, uh, and. We're going to be talking to Tom in just a little bit. I, I got to cover some things, as I always do at the beginning of the show, and I guess I'm running a little late today. I apologize for that. But we'll we'll save some things for my discussion with Tom. But I have to I have to give a shout out first of all to all of the fabulous people that I met: advocates, activists, business people, uh, you know, patients. Uh, what else? What else? Do I need? Uh, uh, industry leaders, things like that, that I met in Colorado last weekend, uh, starting with uh, the VIP event uh, that Millennial Grow and Veedverks and others sponsored. Uh, Millennial Grow and Amy Dawn put on last week, uh, which and and the subject matter. It was the, it was one of the reasons why I had gone out there. And react to the way I did was because Amy's event, and I saw some of the people that she was going to have speaking, who I absolutely wanted to support, get to know, meet, etc. Uh, Michael Minardi was there. Uh, part of the event was to raise money for Chris Lewandowski, the the Marine veteran, the the Iraq and Afghanistan tours. He had, I believe he had done three tours, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, so he came back from his service, from his honorable service, on top of everything else. Uh, and, and he had PTSD, and he needed to medicate himself. Uh, he lived in Lawton, Oklahoma, or he lived in that area. And they arrested him for having six plants. They were trying to give the man 30 years, etc. for having six plants. And and so his trial was supposed to start, I believe, on the 30th, I want to say. So anyway, we so we went out there. And so, so I went out there. Amy was doing an event to talk about uh, and to support Chris Lewandowski. There was also 
uh, you know, some industry stuff that was going on. That, and, and I don't mean to be flip about that. That's really important. Uh, the people that I met just at that event were marvelous. Uh, you know, Mark Peterson was there, who we'll get into that uh, as well later today and later this week. Emily Hyde was there. Uh, again, we'll get into that more later, and we will get into that later this week, of course. Uh, Amy's being interviewed, and I'm going to be playing that interview uh, along with Mark Peterson's interview, along with Larissa Bolivar, another industry leader, uh, activist, advocate, all of these people. Uh, and they have their own personal story relative to their journey into the cannabis world and being brought to Colorado. Ashley Weber, the executive director of Colorado Normal, if there's a better human being in the world, I don't know if I've met them yet. Uh, we spent some time together, and she taught me a lot, told me a lot about what's going on. Uh, and, and, again, Ashley will be talking to you, my listeners, here coming up very shortly. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, we're going to be doing it all week in honor of Hemp History Week and just because it needs to be done. Uh, you know, after coming back, after going to Colorado, I mean, I went, I went on a tour of a girl house, the dispensaries, Dank did that. Again, that was arranged by Emily and Mia. Got a shout out to Mia, of course. Uh, you know, the, the all the people that spoke at the event, all the people that I met, uh, Zeb Barnett, uh, hemp sciences, for example. I learned a lot in a lot of different in a lot of different ways. Spoke to Miguel Ortiz, who's the 420 organizer, one of the 420 organizers uh, in Denver. There's been some recent news about them. It's been negative, and that we're going to clear that up as well. So I have Miguel and Michael Ortiz from the 420 rally this week, as well as as I mentioned, we're going to be coming. But you know, the shout out is for all everybody that I've named and and I'll be naming more as we get into these shows this week. But it was a marvelous, marvelous weekend uh, and a couple of more days around. And I, I was only supposed to be there for a couple of days, but Delta and their flight issues really screwed that up for me. And it wound up turning a bad thing into a positive because because it messed up my schedule so negatively, I had to extend. And, the, and doing that actually... Uh, made my weekend and uh, I say like six days. It actually made it better. You know, the putting, having to reschedule interviews with people uh, on the basis of that, and then the holiday. But it gave me an up and the industry. And again, as I mentioned, meeting these people and everybody else it was actually actually wonderful. And and want to get into the issues that are going on with it. And of course, prohibition. You know, as everybody who listens to this show knows fully well that I have no love for prohibition and I haven't for a very long time and when I was meeting these people and talking even in the first night when I was at this event you know Amy invited me to speak a little bit and I was happy to do so I I, I so I, I talked a little bit but what happened after that just at the at this VIP event that happens every month that Millennial Grow does every month what what happened was I was able to internally make the connection of here we are, one day I'm in a state where cannabis is still legal, and of course I've been around that all my life, you know, once the Controlled Substance Act was created by Nixon 
you know, that means that, that we were dealing with prohibition, even before that, of course, but prohibition my whole life. So putting the internalized connection of now I'm in a place where this is actually legal and operating and people are in the industry and, of course, they know what they're talking about and everything. I just let myself go to, to learn and see, like, it, I mean, it's essentially like any other business when it comes down to, you know, the intelligence and the leadership and and the innovations and the technology that everybody is putting forth in the industry just like they would any other. And that's really important that people, because I did, you know, I, I, it's funny. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I think I had a blank mind uh, for the most part, but, I kept saying, and it was almost, and, and I and I apologize to anybody if I insulted them, but I kept saying, you know, it's really wonderful to be here and to listen to so many people know what they're talking about. And but why wouldn't they know what they were talking about? They're in this as a business, of course they know what they're talking about. And then of course you have the medical side of it. One of the organizations also that's part of this event was uh, the support of medical refugees, in Colorado, or helping them wherever they are to get cannabis. Uh, to use specifically for for medicinal purposes, which is, again we'll get into more of that on the show today. So, so again, I just have to just say what a wonderful time I had meeting everybody who I had who I didn't already know. There was plenty there's plenty of people that I met, interacted with that I that I have only known or interacted with virtually. There was people there, of course, that I did know. I've been doing this for a long time, of course, and so I did see some people that I that I do know from the battle against cannabis prohibition and the legalize it in Colorado and stuff like that. Uh, but it was exciting because of the, the, the people, the new people that I met, the new relationships that were expanded because now we've seen each other. We're actually real human beings. You know, that actually works, everybody. You know, all, all of this technology is fantastic and the social media aspect of things is fantastic. And, you know, I don't, I, I do not downplay the significance of those. I really don't, especially, uh, especially since my involvement in, in the tropical or the Hurricane Sandy that had happened and and my interaction with people who were in danger over social media. Uh, I, so I have a great respect for it in a lot of ways. But I got to tell you, the real deal is, is when you're actually talking to people, interacting with them personally, you know, shaking their hand, giving them a hug. There's a lot of hugging going on. There's a lot of huggers in this group, which is kind of cool. I'm a hugger. So, that you know, that was nice. But it is great to put a face to the Facebook wall comments. So that was really exciting. So just to cover a couple of quick things, I mean, obviously we had, I haven't been on for a couple of weeks and a lot of things going on while I've been putting all this together. And obviously the chief law enforcement officer of the United States of America, Jeff Sessions, sent out word that he wants his prosecutors to go after maximum punishment for everybody and, you know, seek stronger sentences. I found that interesting for another reason. Obviously, you know, from the standpoint of mass incarceration, it's something that we need to push back on hard. Obviously, victimless crimes, which cannabis prohibition leads the way on, and the war drugs leads the way on victimless crimes. The, the, obviously, there needs to be extensive pushback on that because the world is shifting, Jeff Sessions, and if you don't realize it, you need to go retire. You know, the, the, I mean, I'm not, I'm not 25 years old, Jeff. I'm 55. I'm a walking example of why cannabis 
uh, needs to be legal. And it isn't because I've been a user or a drug dealer or whatever. It's because I've been alive and I know what the hell is going on, and it's happened either with me or around me my entire life. And I, and I think that one of the pushbacks, because I'm done with the argument, one of the pushbacks that needs to happen here is that people my age need to, everybody, we all know somebody. If I, if I never, and mind you, I'm a user. Let me be clear here. I'm a cannabis user, period. Okay, I use hemp products. I use cannabis. Let's just be clear that that's what I do. Okay, and that's why. So I'm not. I'm not. You know, and I would be an advocate regardless. But I also am a user. But putting that aside, anybody who's my age or close to it, I know somebody who's been impacted by cannabis either as a friend or as a member of the family, or their neighbors or their community. We all know people who have been impacted by the use of cannabis. Most of that knowledge comes from people who have had to deal with the police in some way, shape, or form relative to cannabis prohibition. Not necessarily somebody who's had to smoke a joint in order to deal with the nauseousness of chemotherapy, for example, which we also all know somebody who has. And we've known about this being an issue or being We've known about the ability, and I've talked about this on this show a number of times, we've known about the fact that cannabis has at least a medicinal value of roll age from the beginning of time. You know, I had an eye injury. I talk about this a lot as well. I had an eye injury when I was 14 years old. I got hit in the eye with a baseball while I had my glasses on. It didn't shatter the lens, but it pushed the lens and the ball into my eye, and it created a pressure reaction. For those who don't know what that is, is your eyes operate in a certain amount of pressure properly, just like your blood pressure is. It, it, it's, it's essentially the same type thing. So the, the injury caused the blood pressure in my eye to go so high, it actually, and, and I didn't rest, and it actually knocked the vision out of both eyes temporarily. Uh, I had to get hospitalized, tests, et cetera. It was mainly about, uh, mainly about rest. It was mainly about putting a 14-year-old in bed and not letting him move in order to get healed, luckily. But what I did learn from the doctor at that time is that there was a possibility that I may develop glaucoma because that is what glaucoma is based upon the pressure, the proper pressure of the eye. So when I was told that, any time the word glaucoma came up in my life from that point on, I paid attention to it. And what was one of the ways that it came up? Cannabis helps glaucoma. So I've known about this since I was 14, everybody. So let's see. So that means that's 41 years of knowing something that I'm not the only one. It wasn't like it was secret information, Jeff, beep-poo. It wasn't like it was at all. So so all of these things were happening over the years, so that makes me, uh, you know, somebody that this should, you know, I don't know, maybe when they talk about these polls that they do, maybe they should call me and ask me about this one because I never get called for polls. I'm not surprised since I hate them. But I'm just saying, so we're all, we're all walking examples of why cannabis prohibition is wrong, just on that basic, simplistic level. But... I was reminded on how evil cannabis prohibition is by my visit to Colorado for a number of reasons. And, of course, I was recently reminded by when the Drug Policy Alliance came here to to Georgia and put on an event at Morehouse College that we supported. I was reminded again of it by them on the mass incarceration side, uh, you know, because that is is one of the, the great evils, great evils, great evils, bad evils whatever the right adjective is, of our society, you know, along with not being able to medicate yourself in a way that 
doesn't require pharmaceuticals being shoved down your throat, which, of, of course, as we all know, again, is an issue that has developed particularly around around the medicinal needs of the veterans, but everybody, of course, you don't have to be a veteran to have PTSD. You don't have to, anybody can have PTSD, obviously, from, from the very nature of the description. And the fact that you don't have to go on all these drugs, various forms, including non-psychoactive, mind you, which is another thing, Jeffy Pooh, you don't have to get high to use cannabis and high THC cannabis. You don't have to even be getting high. A lot of medical marijuana patients don't even get high. They don't even care about the psychoactive side. They care about how it makes them feel. That is you know, of paramount importance as well, Jeffy Pooh, Jeffy Pooh. So we're going to get into all of that, and, and since I'm in late, I'm not going to rant any longer because, you know, we, we have so many important things to talk about, Kathy Griffin. Uh, sorry, I just had to throw that in there. You know, you know, I could care less about that distraction. But I, I want to, you know, it's very important to me, I have to tell you, you know, I got I get a phone call one night uh, from Sharon Revert, the at the time, he's still the executive director of Peachtree Normal. And, and of course, uh, you know, my relationship with Peachtree Normal has been going on now for oh, probably about four years, I guess. Uh, I, yeah, four, year, four years plus. And I've got to know Sharon on a personal level as well. She's a marvelous human being. And the people around her and the people who are on the board of Peachtree Normal are also marvelous human beings. and got to know them both virtually and in person. Uh, you know, we have another meeting of Normal coming up, Peachtree Normal coming up this this Tuesday, the, the normal monthly meeting of Peachtree Normal, and and the, the, usually the response is marvelous. A lot of people go, and, and that's always great to see. But you know, so I get a call from Sharon, and she's and she's talking to me about, you know, the need to take a break. You know, she she's been doing the advocacy side of this all the time, every day for a number of years now, and she, you know she has a life. You know, she's like like all of us do, you know, she has a family, <clears throat> excuse me, she has a personal a personal business, and she also just needs a break, I mean, because this is this is taxing, you know, especially in, in the fact that we're dealing with a government that just loves to just throw failure at us all the time because they don't want to listen to us, they want to listen to Big Pharma, and they want to listen to the police lobby on what should be done here, at least that's part of it. And Sharon was telling me that, you know, she, she's going to step down and she wanted to know what my reaction would be to who she thought should be the new executive director. And when she told me Tom McCain, I just fell in love with the idea. And I, I, I met Tom some years ago uh, working, uh, advocating against what the police had done to David Hooks. In, in in Georgia here are on the basis of a no knock warrant which is which is uh, unconstitutional according to the Georgia state co- uh, constitution for example and they killed him naked in the living room of his house and i went down there to cover a rally i had heard about relative to this and i looked into the case and i went down to cover a rally there in front of the courthouse where in the county where this happened got to meet a number of people, went down there with a bunch of people that I knew already in advocacy and, and, and activism. And I set up down there, and, and we broadcast the radio show uh, live at the event. 
you know, so people could get to know people who were there. They could hear and see what's going on. And and I and I like doing boots on the ground stuff, as everybody knows. I don't like just being a keyboard activist, as as we call them sometimes. So anyway, so I'm down there getting back on point here, and I was down there, and and right after, and I saw Tom Tom McCain was one of the speakers there, and he he's a former deputy sheriff, and he used to work at this particular sheriff's office that did this particular raid uh, where the victim was killed. And there's a lot of aspects of, of this case that we wound up being investigated and exposed and and advocated on, et cetera. And Tom was a part of that. And in the meantime, he was one of the original founders of an organization called Spartac- Spartacus Legal, along with the great Cam- Catherine Bernard and others, uh, to create a, a, a place where people could go to get advice and or possibly help with dealing with cases you know, particularly, uh, well, the the idea is to deal is to help anybody who's dealing with cases that doesn't have the means to do it on their own. You know, that that is the proper advocacy approach, anyway. For, you know, particularly from the lawyer side of it. And Tom got into it, you know, as as a professional investigator, as well. I mean, why wouldn't he? He was a deputy sheriff, and he spent a lot of time training other police officers in Georgia to how to be a police officer or how to work in certain areas, and I'll let him get into his various certifications. But I, I turned the microphone off, and I suddenly disappear. I'm sure. I'm sure everybody was wondering where I went there. But anyway, I'm back. Uh, so Tom had spoke, and a number of other people had spoke. So after the event, everybody was winding down. We were there in the, in the you know, as in, in the heat, in the daytime, and stuff like that. So we all went and had something to eat and stuff. So I go into this one restaurant here locally in that town, and I get introduced to Tom. He was also sitting there with some people, and that's how we met, and that's how we started to get to know each other. I have to tell you, the relationship has been great. You know, Tom and I have consulted on some things. He's been on this show a couple of times before, talking about the David Hooks case and other and other issues. I'm happy to have him on. We've got to know each other. We spent some time together, and 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 I got involved in the David Hooks case uh, even more on the basis, along with him, as a. Uh, I guess it's kind of an advisor type thing, uh, you know, just helping, just putting another set of eyes on things and stuff, helping out. And, and like I said, we got to know each other. So Sharon mentioned to me that Tom was was uh, going to be the new executive director of Peachtree Normal, and I was ecstatic and have been ever since. And, and so I'm going to introduce you, everybody, to Tom, and we're going to move this right along. So good morning, Tom. How are you? No, I'm fine. How are you? I'm good, man. I guess I'm having a little issue here trying to get this this show rolling this morning to some degree. But, you know, I just put a little extra liberty in my coffee, and I should be fine here in a little bit, right? You know, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. <laughs> good. I'm glad to have you on. And, and congratulations being named Executive Director of Peachtree Normal. I know that you, uh, I know you dove into that with uh, both feet and 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 came out swinging right away and uh, I'm happy to I'm happy to congratulate that and introduce you to everybody as the new executive director of Peachtree Normal. How's that feel? Well, it feels pretty good if you want to know the truth about it. Uh, uh first I'd like to say thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to be on this show. And uh, and the whole conversations we talk about issues uh and uh Tell you, I appreciate your friendship over the, the last couple of years, and getting close to three now. Uh, and 
Yeah, that's uh, I got a lot of people that ask me, you know, how how the hell did that happen? You know, you go from being a cop <laughs> to being the the executive director of a uh, marijuana legaliz marijuana legalization outfit, um, and I, you know, I don't know, Bobby, it just kind of happened. Uh, it it all was a result of the David Hooks case, uh, you know, met right. Catherine, of course. She kind of showed me right. the door to activism, uh, and sure. through that, Sharon Rabert, and uh, I listened to her story, uh, kind of broke my heart, and uh, I just decided that, look, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, and putting people in jail about things and maybe it's time that I spend a lot of time trying not to get them in jail or trying to make it where they don't have to go to jail so well you know it's interesting you said what you said at the beginning of that that you know how, how you wound up there but you know I I would offer to you and, and let you comment of course you know uh we're both veterans, first of all, so we understand the oath. I understand the oath you took. You understand I may have took the same oath. And, and then, of course, it's similar to what you do when you go into policing. And and you've always seemed to me as somebody that was interested in the community. You didn't just go do it so you could just run around with a gun. you know. And, and I, I don't say that flip because many, many police officers obviously go into this with the right reason at least initially and and of course you're dealing with policy you guys don't create the laws but ideally when you go to do this it is, you know you go to do this to to work uh to make the community better so it's for, so for me as a, from some an observation and from knowing you before Peachtree Normal and now after it just seems to me like this is a natural way for somebody who's interested in, in what's best for the community to go it might not be the first choice but it just seems like it, there's a good connection what do you, what do you think about that no, yeah, I'd have to agree with you with that. Uh, you know, served uh, served my country in the Air Force for 20 years, uh, and when I got back to Georgia, uh, it just serving my community just seemed like a natural extension of it. So, um, and I did it. <clears throat> you know, I went into it. I, I love it. You know, in Georgia, we are called peace officers. We're certified right. peace officers. And I just, I, that was kind of the tack that I always took, uh, you know, didn't like stirring up a whole bunch of stuff uh, when it was unnecessary. Um was more about, once again, keeping the peace. Um, so, yeah, you know, I have to agree with you. Uh, I guess it does seem like a, just kind of a natural progression to go from there where I was serving my community to recognizing uh, during that law enforcement career that uh, what we were doing was really waging a war on the poor when it came to, when it came to marijuana. Um, You know, I, we've never, (laughs) never participated in a raid on a rich white person's house for marijuana. Isn't that amazing how that happened? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, you know, I can't say that it doesn't happen, but I could just say from my experience that I never participated in one. Uh, You know, it was um, some poor guy living in a run-down, well, not necessarily run-down, but anyway, just, uh, you know, low-level housing. 
nothing wrong with mobile homes, but uh, you know, it's a mobile home is not a mansion. Right. It's not, not not necessarily the people who could afford the good lawyers and can afford bail and and yeah, things exactly. like that. It's just the, the people whose lives were destroyed for a plan that they say. Uh yeah. you, you know, and, and 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 again, you know, you're 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 highlighting something of course that I know moved you uh, and and I know of course is part of the issue on the mass incarceration side particularly on the the war the prohibition war and the war on drugs is is the fact that it's been disproportionately used against the poor and against the the minorities in this country and and you're somebody who has seen that participated in that yourself you know so it isn't like yourself well I read it in the paper you're actually there boots on the ground being involved in this ridiculous policy and and uh, you know uh, Talk a little bit more about that because it, it has to, you know. Obviously, I know you, and I know uh, I know a little bit about what moves you. And, and it isn't like you just developed these feelings and these observations in the last couple of years. You've had them. So, so talk a little bit more about what your impressions were and, and the impact of you of dealing with this issue, particularly with marijuana, uh, and and the type of uh, policing that you had to do. Well, I guess you had to kind of understand that I'm a child of the 50s and 60s, um, and I grew up in rural Alabama watching George Wallace and his antics um, with the Civil Rights Movement, and um, seeing the dogs loosed on peaceful protesters in uh, Birmingham and other places, and I saw what happened on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, and I saw... You know the water hoses turned on um, there again peaceful, peaceful protesters. And um, my dad was a, a Southern Baptist preacher. He's also a World War II veteran. Uh, survived the Arden Forest, as a matter of fact. And uh, you mentioned PTSD a while ago. Uh, it was called shell shock back then. Right. Uh, he right. Was, he was hospitalized for it. Um, Never really talked about his experiences a whole lot until you know his later years, and uh, and so he was. I, I don't know, Bobby. At first, he dealt with it with alcohol, and then he turned to the Lord, and you know, turned to Jesus, and um, and dealt with it that way. But. He was always a compassionate man, had a big heart and everything, and we'd sit there watching all this happening, and he'd talk about just how wrong it was that that we were treating people like that because they wanted to ride in the front of the bus. Um, so, so understanding that uh, about me, um, about my raising, um, throughout my life of... Um, I've just seen that injustice and um, and how it continued into, you know, Jim Crow laws. Um, and I, so when I, you know, when I got active in law enforcement, of course, I worked in the jail first. And, um, you know, the majority of the folks in there were African-Americans. Um, sure. And then... Uh, 
as I came out on the road. First job was juvenile officer. Um, you know, as I came out, of, as I got out of jail, as they say, uh, my first job was juvenile officer, and, the, and which involved a lot of transports down to the, um, the youth detention center. And once again, the majority of the folks that I was hauling down there were African Americans. Um, the uh, or they were, you know, poor whites. So, um, and then as I got out on the road and started, you know, making cases and getting involved in being assigned to raid teams and and that type of thing, and just uh, continued to see it. We're dealing with poor white folks and and uh, poor African Americans, or didn't really matter whether the African Americans were poor, but uh, at any rate, the uh, you know still mostly poor. Um, right. And I, you know, it just now you know I'm. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like it was really tough to watch. Sure, I mean, well, it was. It was tough to watch, and the more I, you know, the more I sat there and did that, the more I, the more I thought, you know, something needs to be done about this. Something needs to be changed. Because I've never been. I mean, I'm not a 420 unfriendly person anyway. Never have been. Uh, Like I said, I grew up in rural Alabama. I didn't really know what marijuana was until I joined the Air Force. And that was sure. kind, of, kind of towards the end of the Vietnam War. It was starting to wrap, uh, wind down. And you know, a lot of troops that were coming back from over there had, had used it over there. A lot of them had used it prior to going over there, you know, but I'd just never been around it. So I was introduced to it. And I tell you, I liked it. Uh, sure. The, uh, and uh, so I used it for several years. Um, and then. You know, over those years, uh, got married, had two children, uh, two daughters, and um, just kind of, I don't know, realized one day, hey, because we were, they, were, they had this program called Golden Flow, and they were starting to test us a good bit. And uh, even though my usage had uh, declined um, from, you know, my earlier years when I was single and running around all over the world, um, I still recognize that, hey, you know, you've got a career here that you could finish up, um, have a have a vested retirement, um, and you've got these two daughters, and you know, it's just not worth giving up all of that to continue smoking this, to using this stuff, so... Uh, made a responsible adult decision about uh, uh, about giving it up, and and, and did that. You know, I, I took a 27 year break there. You know, quit, didn't use it for 27 years, and then picked it back up again after I retired from law enforcement. Several years after I retired from law enforcement. Um, so I never was. Like I said, uh, a 420 unfriendly cop. Uh, if I was detailed off to a um, uh, a raid team, then uh, I did my job. But as far as running in the folks out on the road, and um, you know, I 
I can say that I have n- I've never made a, a marijuana misdemeanor marijuana arrest by uh, just on my own. I've been involved in a few of them when other deputies were around or whatever, but but as far as on my own, I never did it. I sent a bunch of young asses back to the house after making them after giving them the option. Actually, you know, hey, look, you can either pour this out on the ground in front of me and uh, grind it into the into God's good earth with your own foot, or you can go to jail. Uh, and nobody ever took the second choice. So uh, <laughs> amazing how that happened. <laughs> amazing how that happened. That's right. Yeah. And I've had them. Well, you know, I've had those bit, come. Let, let, so chronologically speaking, guys, we get into this a little bit more, and people get to know you and 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 know about you. Talk a little bit about during your career while you're while you have these. Uh, approaches to the war on drugs and cannabis prohibition. Talk a little bit about the training that you've had and the training that you educated, the the training classes that you were the educator on in law enforcement. So people have an idea of the extensive knowledge and ability that you've had in law enforcement. So cover that a little bit. Well, again, I started out in a jail. I got a jail certification. Um, got uh, they decided to move me out of there, uh, sent me to Mandate um, or Police Academy, um, and um, started working in juvenile, then moved from there to um, road patrol and was promoted to corporal while I was in there. I uh, was uh, uh, moved into investigations as a, as a corporal, did that for a couple of years, and then promoted me to sergeant and gave me a uh, road shift. So I was, uh, uh, you know, essentially, uh, you know, when the sheriff wasn't there, I was the sheriff. Um, it's just kind of the way it works because I was a guy that was out there responsible for these other folks that uh, were working um, with me and for me. Um, and, and then a um, buddy of mine, little protege of mine, uh, very good friend of mine, actually, named Kyle Zinkheller, got uh, murdered on the side of I-16, actually on the frontage road that that ran by I-16. And uh, that was in January of uh, 1998. And uh, it just kind of set me back for a little while. so I decided to get out of law enforcement. There was some pressure from family to do that also. And uh, so I went to truck driving school, drove 48 in Canada for a couple of years. Uh, I went to work as a, a bondsman in a bonding company. So instead of putting them in jail, I was getting them out of jail. Uh, much more lucrative business, by the way. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. I yeah. have no doubt. So, um and then uh, my friend Rusty Oxford, who I had worked in the jail with uh, at Lawrence County, got elected as sheriff of Johnson County, and he appointed me as his chief deputy. So I spent seven years doing that. But as far as certifications, I'm a firearms instructor. Uh, of course, I'm a trained investigator. Uh, I'm a general law enforcement instructor. Um, and I also hold a senior deputy certification, 
um, which is a specialized certification in Georgia dealing strictly with the office of sheriff and the performance of the duties uh, uh, of the sheriff. And um, there are not a whole lot of folks in Georgia that actually hold um, that certification. So um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,300 hours of uh, continuing education credits. and 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 seven years of experience uh, in being the being the uh, guy who actually ran all the operations out of the uh, sheriff's office. Who was actually, uh, you know, the sheriff would tell me, "Tom, get this done," and I get it done. Or uh, sheriff would uh, say, "You know, these guys need to uh, do whatever." I was the guy that made it happen. So, uh, I, you know, about 15 years of experience altogether in law enforcement. And then, and then you got into the political side of it as well. Oh yeah, um, I, I, when when Rusty appointed Politics me, basically. Yeah, they are. Uh, when Rusty appointed me, basically told me that uh, I needed to. You know, his first priority was a uh, a new jail because uh, we had a twelve man jail that we kept thirty two or thirty three people in. Uh, they slept in shifts, slept in mat- on mats in the floor. It was a it was a lawsuit waiting to happen. That's what it was, and uh, so. I pushed that. Had two heart attacks while I was working for Rusty, um, and uh, one of those was in 2007 and uh, uh, mid 2007. And um, I, there again, after some some reflection, I decided uh, that I was going to go ahead and and get out of the uh, well, get out of that portion of the business anyway. But I also saw. Um, I also saw a need for some things to happen in Lawrence County and uh, recognized some uh, civil rights violations that were being uh, being committed there. And so I decided I was going to run for sheriff. Now, you know, what what kind of sense does it make to leave a stressful job to run for sheriff? Eh, probably none, uh, but, uh, but I did that. And... Uh, but you know, it's, and your response. Uh, yeah, so, so let's let's highlight. Wait, hold on. Now. Let's highlight this now. This is important because, you know, I don't want people to miss what you just said. You you were you're in one county as the, as the chief Defi- chief sheriff's right. deputy. Right. You're watching what you consider to be civil rights, bad civil rights behavior and violations by another sheriff's office in a different county, where you have and that was work. And where I lived, right where you lived, right now. So this is important. Right. So, so again, getting looping back around to the part where, you know, you're community conscious, and here you're dealing even with recovering from health issues. You still can't stand by and see this kind of behavior coming from the people who wear the badge. That's got to be pointed out to my listeners. You know, I, I, it talks about who you are, what kind of man you are, and that shouldn't just be rolled over by a freight train uh, in the conversation. I have to highlight that. <laughs> so now you're, okay. yeah, I, I mean, it's important stuff. It, it, you know, it talks to who you are. And, 
in my opinion. And so, okay, so you see this, and your response is to go, well, I can do it better, and I, and I don't have to violate civil rights to be a sheriff. Imagine that for a concept. And so you enter into the political storm of doing that. And, and again, I just wanted to highlight that. So go on. So, so finish that little chronology for us. Well, and there again, you know, it's I, I'm not from Georgia. I ain't from around here, as they say. Um, and uh, so I was the I was the stranger. I was the outsider, and uh, the sheriff was a you know long time had been a deputy for years. Retired as a deputy, uh, came back and ran for sheriff against uh, Kenny Webb. Uh, lost the first try, but. Uh, and then uh, Sheriff Webb decided he was going to retire, uh, and he won the uh, the election uh, after that. And um, so, uh, you know, he was uh, he was the local. He was from around there, and, and essentially, I got my ass handed to me in that election. So, um, and well, it was not a have been backed by the big money, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> you're just a regular guy trying to run an election. And you're not backed by the big money either. I mean, we all know that that's an issue here as well. So. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of there was a lot of door to door at something I tried to do, which is an, almost an impossibility in Lawrence County, by the way. It's 842 square miles of uh, of county, and uh, there's 20 well, a little just shy of 50,000 people, 47, 48 at that point in time. And uh, you know, it's and it's, so it's all rural, or <clears throat> the majority of it's rural. So um, you know, getting out and and trying to go door to door is a massive undertaking in that county. Uh, but I tried it, <clears throat> and um, so but but there again, you know, the the donations came from you know for the for the campaign to run the campaign came from friends and family, and you know there wasn't any, you know, I didn't have. Um, I didn't have big farming corporations or or anybody else, uh, you know, uh, donating to me. So, uh, still, we managed to do it. Put on, you know, put on a good campaign. Um, and but like I said, I just you know, I'm, I was the outsider. So, uh, and there were a couple of other issues involved in it, but uh, at, regardless, I lost. So. Um, but yeah, it uh, it was an eye opener for sure. So. Well, no doubt. Okay, so then some years go some years go by, and you get introduced, you get reintroduced to the war on drugs and cannabis through various things that happened, including the David Hooks murder. I mean, I don't know other other way to put that, other than it was a murder. I, 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 you know, I know that we spent a lot of time talking about that case, and even the forensics, and I, it just didn't make any sense as to what had happened. Well, but, you know, the thing, you, the thing about it is, Bobby, and this is something that I've been chided about by many of the supporters of uh, of David and his family. Uh, it wasn't a murder. Um, not as far as I've been able to determine. I dug into that thing pretty deeply, and uh, yeah, I know that. You know, it was it wasn't a, a murder. It was a, it was just a tragic set of circumstances that all came together and, and resulted in his death. I can't 
I can't fault the guys that were on that entry team who went into the house and you know, kicked that back door open. And by the way, that it wasn't a no-knock search warrant. It was um, uh, yeah, the, the magistrate didn't give them a, a no-knock or didn't approve a no-knock provision on that search right. warrant. Um, right. so, yeah, I should have said that. But, that actually is true, right. It was just, that right. I do remember that. They're, they're, for accuracy, sir, it was not a no knock that was issued, uh, uh, right? And, so, and I know, and I know that talking to you, a lot of the execution had to do with that, and the fact that the the background as to how they got from point A to point B to have an entry team was more the issue than actually what exactly. happened right. uh, in the room. So, and, and and I so I need to not use words like that because you're right. I I know all about that as well, and and. It really was more about policy and investigation and why why it happened than actually what had happened inside the house. Right, and what I consider a lack of due diligence and uh, taking the word of a, uh, a snitch uh, uh, and just running with it. Um, right, so, right, without but, any verification or background or right, investigation. Right. right, but as far as the uh, but as far as the entry team itself and the actions that they took once inside the uh, the home, uh, you know, they did what I trained people to do. You know, mm-hmm. When you see that threat, you eliminate the threat. It's, uh, right. and, and so they, once they entered that home and they saw David leveling and swinging around with a shotgun in his hand uh, or in his hands um, and and beginning to bring it to bear on them uh, and the forensic evidence um, backs that up that he did uh, indeed uh, bring a shotgun to bear on them uh, their training kicked in and they just did what they were taught um, I don't have a problem with that um, the problem I have is how they got there in the first place. The fact that uh, you know, Dave, David's uh, property had been um, well, it wasn't really a burglary. You don't call bur- uh, theft from an outbuilding uh, a burglary in uh, in Georgia, unless it's a commercial outbuilding. Um, so you know, this guy goes out there and he breaks into one vehicle. Um, and then he uh, breaks into a couple of outbuildings, steals guns and um, uh, fishing equipment, and um, then uh, then he steals a vehicle off the property. Now this happened the day before David gets killed. So you know, and they put this team together and they go out there and uh, and they don't have any lights on uh, when they roll up. Um, David's wife is uh, in the upstairs uh, in her craft room. Uh, she uh, hears the David's already in bed asleep. She hears the uh, she hears something. Vehicles coming across uh, a dam face. They live behind two ponds with a, a driveway, a couple dam face uh, between them. And she hears the uh, vehicles coming across. Looks out, and what she sees is four or five people in uh, dark clothing with hoods on and uh, and weapons coming up her driveway. 
Uh, and this is the day uh, after they were. This is the day after they were robbed, or right. whatever the right term. Right. This is the day after they were robbed right. that they reported to the police that this is in right. fact happening. Which I know was back, back when we were talking about this case and looking into the case and the details. That was an issue, you know, as far as the overall picture of David. Right. You know, I mean, obviously we're surmising David's reaction. We weren't. We're not inside his head. But that. But we did talk to her. You know. I know you did it late, and that was part of the scenario is that they just were robbed, and it just been with the right. police talking about it. So that they're not; right. she's not thinking about the police. She's thinking about, uh oh, they're robbing me again. You know, I mean, this right. Is so she comes downstairs, pounding on the the wall of the stairway, which was the wall of the bedroom. Um, wakes David up. They hear a bunch of, or she says they're hearing a racket at the back door, uh, but they're not hearing any voices. They don't know what's going on. They hear pounding and all that. David tells her to get in the closet. He goes to the um, he goes to the back door, and uh, you know, I surmise that what happened is he goes to the back door. Of course, nobody will ever know because he's not allowed to tell us. But I, but. Right, right. Having having read some of the testimony of the entry team, um, the guy that was actually at the door in uniform announcing uh, that they were, uh, uh, you know, it was the sheriff's office, I surmised that what happened is um, David goes to the back door, um, kind of looks through, um, and recognizes that it's the sheriff of the sheriff's office, but he's standing there in the nude. And he turns, uh, I assume, go put some pants on. That's what I would have done. Uh, don't sure. think I'd have open, opened that door swinging. So, um, <laughs> and, no. and, and according to the testimony of the, uh, the officer that was at the door, he, David's. They were able to see him through the glass, and um, so when David turned around and walked away from the door, they assumed um, that they were compromised and went ahead and uh, kicked the back door open, and the result was mm, David's death. So, um, sure, sure. Uh, so I just thought that the whole thing, the way it. Well, in the first place, the way they took the work, because they caught the thief uh, through a series of circumstances, who had already stolen another vehicle, by the way. Uh, That was on a couple of nights before, two or three nights before. Had already stolen another vehicle. They knew that he had stolen it, and I believe they had a warrant for him for that. and there again, I believe they did, and that was one of the reasons that they went on out and uh, responded to a call from his mother. And uh, so when they encounter him, uh, he's still he's got some of the items in his possession, and he's got a uh, plastic bag, <coughs> kind of like a bank bag, um, and in it uh, he has somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 grams of methamphetamines and a set of digital scales. And uh, right. He, when questioned about it, he says, oh, no, I got this out of the other vehicle out there that I broke into. Right. And and it was David's bag, okay? But, you know, whether that methamphetamine was in it or not, um, 
uh, when he stole it out of the car is something that, you know, we only have his word for it. And, and, and that's what kind of really uh, was the icing on the cake for me that they, uh, they take the word of a professed um, meth addict, meth dealer, thief, like he's Abraham Lincoln swearing on a stack of Bibles and playing together, squeak it past a magistrate who was young and inexperienced, by the way. Um, right. And I remember that. Right. Yeah. And, and and they put this thing together, and I think it is just poorly executed, poorly. Um, well, certainly, know, poorly I thought mean, out we, we, period. So. I mean, well, certainly we have seen so many instances in our society. I mean, obviously these things happen, and we don't hear about the successful ones that go fine and nobody's killed and they and, and they achieve the objective and no officers are killed. You know, there's plenty of them that happen on a daily basis that we don't hear about. Typical media response, I mean, we have to point that out. You know, but we also right. hear about all these instances where they have this information from a – uh, an informant or somebody who's just trying to get out of being in trouble, whatever that scenario is, and they've raided right. the wrong houses, for example, which has to be. You know, when I see a raid, and we see them all the time, we see them all the time, we see them a lot, I should say. They happen They happen way too much, let's put it that way. And, and it shows the same type of lack of investigation, lack of due diligence when that happens. How do you raid a wrong house? You have to identify the people that are in the house that you're getting ready to raid before you do it. You shouldn't just accept the word of somebody and then go, which is which is really what happens here and what happens in other circumstances uh, that, you know, as you mentioned, you know, and you were running an operations of a county. That's not the type of thing that you would do. You need to know no. exactly what's going on. And what any officer who's diligent, needs to do and, and unfortunately that you know that is a that diligence is a lost art to some degree uh when it comes to anything and, and so that has to be noted as well in this as to why that's such a bad thing because it happens it happens all too frequently uh in law it enforcement. Does. yeah it's unfortunate and, so and i want to and i want to make a statement here i'm i'm not Anti-law enforcement. I'm not anti-cop. Hell, no, I don't care. and I don't want to. No, that's uh, yeah. a very good. Why? Why should you be? There's no reason for you to be. I mean, it, 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 I'm glad you're saying that. So, so go on. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I mean that, well, that's no, not that's, the approach that, here at all. Yeah. Oh no, that's fine. It's just that you know there. Look, when when you when you take a scenario like this and you go from. Uh, you go from a person being uh, having his proper property entered and having property stolen from having other property stolen from the physical property, um, and, and you go from that to the guy being killed, uh, the victim yeah. of the, the the robbery being killed um, the night or the next night at eleven o'clock because of testimony from uh, just based on the testimony of the admitted thief um, there's something wrong with that I, yeah i mean it's not enough yeah. it's certainly not enough there's no yeah, doubt about it enough. you know exactly. certainly i mean if you know it's interesting 
it's interesting when you think about this, the legal side of it, and I'm sure you had and probably had this discussion with Catherine even. <laughs> you know, let's just say for a minute that there was a raid and and David was not killed. He was just arrested and, you know, right. went to jail. And, you know, and let's say that they found something. That whole scenario is questionable as to whether or not it's going to be used on the basis of the information anyway. You know, it, it, it's it's it, it, the whole thing just smelled of bad policing, uh, basically, when it comes to the work behind the scenes. Like you say, not so much how the entry team behaved, but the work that was done just to get to that point to decide to decide to go to a raid, what they brought to the magistrate, an inexperienced magistrate saying, yeah, okay, because, you know, you have a badge on, I'll accept what you say, and not doing their job. Uh, not doing his job, and then the plan itself, like you say, no lights and the way their approach, that whole thing. There was just a lot of bad preparation for it and diligence. It's, it seems to me that uh, I don't think anybody would have a problem with that. And to comment just briefly on your, you know, anti-law enforcement. You know, I have to say in your defense of that, you know, for anybody who says that, is that you know, having real observations and, and having policy positions or being anti-prohibition is not mutually exclusive as to being some kind of anti-law enforcement person. That's not how this works. That's not how the world is supposed to work. You know, you're not, you're not a robot and you shouldn't be, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you see the impact of these bad laws, bad policy on a daily basis, even more so than other people. It seems to me like more cops should have your position than less just on the basis of what they've seen. I mean, we all have ears and eyes and a brain. You know, and and you, you like you mentioned when you were talking about the jail. You know, you had 33 people in a jail that holds 12. Well, obviously there's a problem there, and you, you're, right. you're seeing it, and 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 your reactions to it should be, it shouldn't be that you're anti-law enforcement because you have an, a a reaction to fix something like that. You know, and that tends to be a little bit of the rhetoric that you get when you're when you're doing the kind of things that you do. Talk a little bit about that. Oh the yeah. Stigma of, you know. It, that that's got to be a conversation that you have too, especially with your with your now and ex law enforcement buddies. Yeah, and you know I definitely had my detractors during um, during that whole thing. Um, you know, was, uh, well, and you know it started out <clears throat> kind of started out. Well, why are you even getting involved with this? You know, you, this is just sour grapes. You lost the election to the sheriff, and right, you're just coming right. back, and uh, you know there's just sour grapes, um, and uh, you know maybe there was a little bit of that involved. I'm not naive enough to believe that. Uh, actually, if you if you want to know the truth about it, I was thinking to myself, I told you some bitches this was going to happen. See, right, back which, two, which is back, different back, than which is different than having sour grapes. That's well, different. that's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, so, it, all this happened like that. Damn it! Didn't I tell you this was going to happen? And now I'm going to tell you what's so bad about it. What's wrong with that? Yeah. But I get. It. Yeah. But I get politics, and I get yeah. that right. Yeah. So you know, and I was, I, I don't know, I was called a cop, turned into a cop hater, and and all that. But you know, actually, that was that that was from very few folks. Uh, that was mm-hmm. from. Uh, uh, mainly from uh, the the guy that had gotten the search warrant, who I've known for. Well, as a matter of fact, we attended right. mandate. We talked about that, spent. right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, at any rate, the uh, I, you know, 
the and, and yeah, I've had conversations with folks about it since, and and um, but to tell you the truth, most of the old law enforcement friends, I say most uh, that I had. Um, were kind of in agreement with me, I mean, especially when you sure. considered that sure. that after a 44-hour search of the property, uh, a little over 200 acres of land, now David only lived and only owned uh, one acre in the middle of it. The rest of it's family belongs to his dad. Um, right. And, um, right. So... Um, but, and when you consider the fact that after a 44-hour search by the GBI, who was called in to, to help investigate this thing, um, there was nothing found um, right. on the property. Right. There was no, no evidence of uh, methamphetamine use. There was no evidence of methamphetamine possession, uh, you know, Nothing. Manufacturing, anything, right? Sure, Nothing. sure, sure. That's right. So, sure. um, yeah, I, I, I do remember. I do remember, and 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 that was another, again, another, another aspect of if you guys would have done your due diligence, there would be this person would be alive, uh, and, That's right. and you know, even even if you would have wound up doing a search of the house, you could have done it in the daytime. You could have all those things that we talked about back then. Yeah. And, and, yeah, there's no doubt. So, so again, this is how you and I got to know each other, one of the aspects of it. Right. But let's talk about <clears throat> the journey that you had to get to where you are now, including the medicinal use uh, or the use of cannabis for medicinal reasons for yourself. Talk about right. your journey there. Um, all right. Well, the... I mean, you know, it's really kind of two separate issues, but um, so split them up, and I'll talk about how I how I came to to get into the activism side of this and advocacy side of it. Um, and there again, you know, during the David Hooks um, debacle, uh, debacle, however you pronounce that. Sure, right? sure, sure. Uh, um, I was introduced to Catherine Bernard. And uh, right. I just, you know, her, Catherine's very passionate about a lot of causes, but she's basically just like a freedom-loving, um, you know, constitutional-believing uh, individual who uh, who became an attorney, a defense attorney. Um, and it's kind of nice when the attorneys got created that way, isn't it? It's, it's kind of uh, yeah. Catherine's kind of a model of a good attorney, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I think yeah, so too. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, no doubt. So, anyway, I was introduced to her, and uh, now, you know, this case happened in September of uh, 2014. So, uh, during the legislative, the 2014-2015 legislative session, um, there was a bill that was introduced that essentially would have written. Uh, term no uh no not warrant into black letter law in Georgia. Right. Now, right. Uh, currently um well uh, currently what happens is you go to a magistrate um to get a search warrant and if you believe that um there's some factor or a combination of factors that would uh that a 
uh, knock and announce, as they call them, um, would uh, would jeopardize life or would uh, possibly result in the uh, destruction of evidence, then you can uh, try to convince a magistrate that um, that a no-knock uh, provision is warranted uh, in the search warrant where you don't have to announce. Uh, you just go up and um, basically kick the door in. Um, well, there's a law in Georgia that uh, concerning search warrants that that contains a requirement to announce yourselves, um, and uh, so there is no law in Georgia that uh, allows you to not announce yourself. But what has happened is over the years, judges. Uh, because they didn't want to lose evidence in a case, a rule that the actions that were taken um, were appropriate, and through kind of a well, what my friend Paul Malley calls judicial fiat, uh, this has become accepted practice in the state of Georgia. Um, so essentially, what this law did, this proposed bill did, was it took the current procedures. Um, that are used to obtain a no-knock warrant and um, and codify them. And in the process of codifying it, they actually use the term no-knock warrant. Well, uh, we didn't want that to happen. Catherine didn't want that to happen. She talked to me about it. So, uh, you know, I went and testified uh, in front of the Senate committee on this a couple of times. And... Uh, you know, from the perspective of a retired law enforcement officer, uh, a retired chief deputy who had you know, managed things like this um, and who had been taught by a couple of old, really good magistrates about why, uh, you, you know, these guys would hardly ever approve them. Um, I mean, it had to be something really unusual for for these two magistrates that learned all of this under to uh, uh, to grant one. So, um, and I wish there were more of them around like that. Um, so, uh, there again, we testified against it, and uh, and we were able to defeat that bill. We were able to, it never got out of committee. Um, so. Through that, I met Sharon because she was also there testifying against it um, as a result of the experience that she had in her own home uh, when it was when her door was kicked in um, early in the morning and um, um, yeah, it was raided and they were looking for her daughter who lived in her basement and. Uh, who had in her possession 1.7 grams, less than I mean, uh, 1.7 grams of uh, marijuana. Um, but they wound up arresting her for uh, uh, cultivation, manufacturing marijuana. Um, and right, so she right. was. Sharon was. Sharon was. Uh, also testifying as that, I was introduced to her, and just over a period of time, we uh, spent some time talking to each other. And and Sharon will tell you today, I didn't trust a son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, it's uh, 
she, right. <laughs> you know, she went from being somebody who had law enforcement officers come out to her place and shoot skeet and trap and, uh, you know, come out and visit with her, uh, people, uh, customers of her uh, kennel business. Uh, uh, she went from being that kind of person to um, somebody who just does not trust cops one bit whatsoever. Sure. And, uh, sure. and, and, you know, really, really it breaks her heart. And that's, uh, we've talked about this a lot. And, and she doesn't want to be like that. It's just the way that the system has turned her. Um, and yeah. Yeah. so anyway, listen to her story about, about Brit and we we're sitting on a bench out in front of the, um, legislative building and, um, I she broke down, just kind of started, you know, I had literally sitting there squalling and broke my heart in the process. And I thought, well, you know, this is something I can get behind because um, it's it's time for a change in Georgia when it comes to um, when it comes to the harm that. Um, the war on cannabis, uh, the war on drugs in general causes. Um, so um, that's how I got involved in the movement. Um, after a, I don't know, after a year or so, um, a lot of conversations where she uh, asked me to be on the board of advisors, which I, which I accepted. And, um, then when she finally decided that she that it was time for her to step down, uh, we started we started talking and uh, told her that um, that's what she felt like she needed to do, and uh, she trusted me enough to take the organization over that I'd be happy to step up and do it. So that's what I did. Um, I, um, you know, basically, well, I didn't have to put an application in or anything like that or submit a resume because everybody pretty much already knew me um, over the past couple of years, from my activism over the past couple of years. And, um, and um, so on April 17th, I was elected as the uh, as new executive director. Um, now, the other part of that question uh which kind of deals with my reintroduction to to cannabis. Um, I, I don't know how this happened, but I've been involved in a couple wrecks, and of course, you always there's always going to be a tussle or two um, uh, with folks that you encounter in, in law enforcement, and um, especially when you're trying to take their freedom away from them. So. Um, over the years, just developed some back problems, um, and got put on hydrocodone uh, by the Veterans Administration. Um, sure. And I, you know, gained a lot of weight. Uh, I was up at about 300 pounds. Hydrocodone was not the only uh, pharmaceutical that I was on that had that may cause dizziness or drowsiness warning on it. Um, so at one point in time, I was actually taking nine different medications that 
had that warning on the label um, all at the same time. So I'd gotten up to about 300 pounds. If you want to know the truth about it, I kind of lost. And and I'll have to say this as, as a part of this. I also kind of lost my purpose, lost my sense of purpose, which led to some sure. depression. And, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I was having trouble sleeping at night, and that's a side effect of the – or I was having trouble sleeping, period – um, that's a side effect of the hydrocodone. Um, sure. And then when I did fall asleep, um, which was normally three, four o'clock in the morning, I'd sleep till late afternoon uh, or uh, mid afternoon. <clears throat> so I just kind of a zombie. Um, and we made a. My wife and I made a trip out to Nebraska to visit my daughters and uh, and my five grandkids out there and uh, and decided to move up there. We I left Nebraska in 1991 and um, just over the years that you know, I missed my grandkids growing up other than in pictures and seeing them every once in a while with, you know, visits back and forth. Um, but, you know, I just decided I wanted to, that we were going to spend some time with them. They, my youngest daughter asked me to move in with her, and uh, so we did. Um, and her husband is a, uh, was, he's dead now, unfortunately, but uh, her husband was a, uh, was a smoker, um, a cannabis user, a marijuana smoker. And uh, I came up out of the basement, which we were living in, um, one morning, and that routine up there had kind of turned into um, wake up about the time the sun hit the window and uh, kind of get up and get turned around. Um, and go upstairs, make a pot of coffee, go back down, and take my medicine, uh, struggle back up the steps, and get a cup of coffee, and start my day. Um, and this particular morning, as I'm walking by the uh, door that led out onto the, the deck on the back, uh, some of son law sitting out there smoking a bowl. So, uh, Instead of going back down, I put the coffee on, but instead of going back downstairs, I just walked out on the deck. And, of course, he knows I'm a retired cop and all that, and he's trying to hide this bowl. And uh, I told him, hey, let me have a hit of that. And he got a surprised look on his face, handed it to me, and, and I took a toke. And the um, first thing I realized is this ain't the stuff I've been, I was smoking back in the, in the 70s, you know. And... Um, and then the second thing that uh, that occurred <laughs> no to doubt. me was, no yeah, right. Second thing that occurred to me was, after about a two and a half hour conversation, we're still sitting on the back porch, and um, I had not even thought about going downstairs and taking any medicine. Um, so, just over a period, of, and, and that really interested interested me in it. And of course, there was also the aspect of the fact that it quieted some of the demons um, that were associated with uh, all the rest of it. Uh, you don't sure. you don't deal with taking thirty milligrams of hydrocodone spaced out during the day uh, over a five year period. Um, 
right. without right. doing some of the negative effects of that. And um, um, anyway, the uh, so that interested me uh, the the fact that it that I wasn't hurting, but also, like I said, the the fact that it kind of calmed my demons um, was impressive. So, um, and then my grandkids. Uh, started getting me out, getting me active, and I learned to play disc golf. And I went from 300, right at 300 pounds, down to about 220. Uh, and uh, nice. Yeah, my my got my diabetes under control. I mean, it was just you know. And the reason I was able to do all this was was because of the the cannabis use. And over over a period of time, weaned myself off of all the pharmaceuticals. Um, and 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 really got to digging into it as medicine. Got to doing some research about it. Saw some articles online and um, and got to digging into it. And um, it just started realizing, look, what they're saying here is true. You know, it's not this evil thing that which I'd never thought it was an evil thing anyway, but it's not it's not this evil thing. It's it, it's curative, it's restorative. And Yep. Um so you know, got interested in that aspect of it. And of course that just kinda led to um well there again into the activism because that's one of the things that I fully support here in Georgia. Um like my friend our friend Ted Mitt says. Um, Absolutely, I saw Ted yesterday. Here, uh, matter of fact, yeah. What we have here is a big empty box in Georgia. We've got a law that says that you can possess up to 20 ounces of uh, CBD low THC um, cannabis oil, but we have no in-state cultivation or production of that. Uh, in-state cultivation of the plant or the production. Um, of the oil using that plant, um, and you know, even if you qualify um, and obtain a medical card here in Georgia, we uh, the only way to obtain it is to obtain it illegally. So, um, yep. Yep. you know, it's just another one of those nonsensical things uh, about. Let, 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 let's let's highlight that again. Let's highlight that again. Uh, you know what you just said because that's one of the reasons why we do this what we do here in Georgia is there is a law that has now been passed and actually expanded on just this past session that uh, on what conditions are uh, are state uh, state qualified for the the possession and use of CBD oil low THC CBD oil in the state of Georgia. So that is passed. Now, we don't need to get into how we feel about this law, but the fact remains is that our elected officials who allegedly work for us passed this law in this state, allowing us to possess this. Now, add to what you just said after that is that there's no way to get it legally because there are laws that exist in this country that don't allow us to go to Colorado, for example, where I just was, and buy the qualified CBD oil amount, for example, because you certainly can get it there, and bring it back here because you have 
transportation laws both in Colorado and Georgia as well as federally that stop this. So what exactly did they do when they passed this law other than what? There's, there's no, as Ted, as you mentioned, Ted describes an empty box, there's no way at all that this law has any value to anybody in the state of Georgia uh, when it comes down to being a law-abiding citizen, if you wanted to approach it that way. You can't do it. Uh, and, and in that regard, it should be stopped. That has to be highlighted. Uh, anybody who you're, you're, I mean, that has to just piss you off as a police officer. How the hell do you do that to your neighbor? How, you know, you could arrest your neighbor. That's a factor in our world. You know, police officers do know people that they, they have to deal with in their in their lives as civilians. That's how community policing is, particularly out of large cities. So they're telling you that you have to arrest somebody who is actually doing something legal but didn't where it wasn't allowed to do it legal to get to the legal point. That's absurd. That has to drive you crazy. Well, well it does drive me crazy, and you know, that's sure. <laughs> one of the one of the arguments that I that I use, of course, and, 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 you know, the thing about it is the majority of law enforcement executives get this about medical. I think if you, I think it was significant this last, le- this past legislative session that the Georgia Sheriff's Association and the Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police, who had been pretty adamant in their testimony uh, against any kind of uh, in-state growth, uh, or uh, in-state cultivation of the process in the medicine um, were absent in all the testimony this past year. Um, the well, well, I, I, you know, I would argue, and and I, I whatever works, uh, but you know, they, they, this, all they have to do is go out to Colorado and look how they do the the, the compliance side of the grows. And that has to alleviate, and, and the private industry does it better than the public, than, than, than the government does. That's another thing I yeah, learned but, on this trip recently. And, and, but they, but have they, to, they have to look at that. And, and if they look at that as law enforcement people, they know that it can be done at any level if they're paying attention. Well, they don't have to look at a damn thing, Bobby. Well, that's true. Except they, <laughs> that's, you true. Know, that, that's true, you too, know. right? That you know this better yeah. than I do. And you're, you're right, of course, of course, of course. So, and, and that's one of the problems, you know. It's, uh, look, I, well, I, tell you, I was going to say I've never met a dumb sheriff. Um, I can't <laughs> say that. Um, Stop. But, Stop. Uh, well, I, look, I. I yeah, you know, right down here, and we were. We all know dumb people, man. damn it. They yeah. just it's, there's no there's no wall around around uh, dumb people that doesn't right. allow them into the world. That's for sure. Yeah, we've yeah. we've had three sheriffs arrested in 2017. Already. Yes, we have. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you know. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah. The, 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 yeah. I, we're talking about the DUI. I know we're talking about that. Um, uh, that was wasn't that the cab the cab's guy and he was arrested in in Atlanta, if I recall, like uh, maybe about a month ago. I have to go back and look. But anyway, yeah, yeah. He had some very well, that wasn't things that, going on with that, me. Yeah, you're right. That wasn't a DUI. That was a uh, that was actually a uh, oh public indecency. Uh, public indecency. That's what yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, and, that's uh, what it was. I remember yeah, now. Yes. Yeah. You know, public I, indecency. I 
how stupid do you have to be as a seated sheriff to approach somebody in a park with your Johnson hanging out? I mean, that's, you know. And then Wheeler, Wheeler County, right down here, uh, bordering us, um, sheriff down there uh, gets arrested initially for stealing pine straw. Uh, and then, oh my gosh! Um, and then, and then gets arrested again up in Twig County on the interstate uh, with methamphetamines. Um, you know, a significant oh, amount of methamphetamines. Nice. Uh, and then we've got it. I think it was Miller, uh, another sheriff. I'm not going to say the county because I'm not real sure. Um, I think it's Miller, but uh, anyway, um, you know, he gets arrested for. Selling stolen guns, uh, selling stuff. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, then, I saw that. And then I turns around that. and gets, yeah. a, and then turns around and gets arrested again for twenty-eight counts of embezzlement. Yeah, um, and, yeah. You, know, if you can get, you know, the GBI has an, an arrest um, page, you know, where they do investigations. And if you go back and look through the archives of that thing, I mean, it, it seems like we have at least one sheriff arrested almost every year in Georgia. Um, so lovely, That's I, you know, lovely. and we went down a dirt road on that. What I was saying, uh, what I was going to say was these, these folks yeah. are, you know, they're not dumb. Okay. The majority right. of them are not right. dumb. Uh, right. And, and right. they, they can read the evidence just as well as we can. Um, you know, both the scientific and the, uh, um, anecdotal evidence and, Right, and, and they know that that marijuana is not the evil weed that uh, Harry J. Anslinger portrayed it to be in 1937. Um, yep, and yep. you know, and, and you can see the racial bias in all of that in in Anslinger's yep. comments about you know uh, marijuana makes um, makes darkies think they're as good as white men. Uh, really? Uh, <laughs> a law enforcement officer said that. Of course, you have to look at the times. It was 1937. Uh, but um, but still, the racial bias of it, I don't see how any of them can look at it uh, from, from the roots of its prohibition all the way through to, uh, you know, wh- what we're doing today and what we're learning about the fact that it is uh, a viable medicine, that it, that it doesn't do the harm that it was claimed to do. Um, uh, all this evidence is out there in front of them. However, and there again, I'm not anti-law enforcement, okay? And they have a law on the books that they are sworn to uphold and enforce. Mm-hmm. And the basic line is, and it's not just the Sheriff's Association. I rail on them a lot because, you know, I was, uh, I, I spent a lot of time at the Georgia Sheriff's Association earning that uh, uh, senior deputy certification. So, I, you know, I know them. I know the players up there. And, and, you know, in a conversation I had with Terry Norris, who's the executive vice president of the association, and who's really the guy that runs it, uh, keeps it all together. Um, had a conversation with him, and he says, Tom, yeah, the sheriffs are always going to toe the line of enforcing the law. And 
Yes, but, but, they, but, but I have a problem with that position, and I'll tell you what it is politically, is there's no reason why the Sheriff's Association couldn't go to the legislature and say, we agree this is a bad law. You know, that's my problem with the stance of yeah, I agree with you. coming out. Yeah, I mean, if, they, if you're, it's one thing to take the position that you describe, which I agree with, but it's another thing to not advocate bad law. There's no, I mean, when we're talking, because you have the good law base, you have the Constitution. Every sheriff, as you know better than I, is you take the oath to uphold that state's Constitution and the federal one. That's right. Just talk about that state. So you have the basis of what good law is. So if the legislature creates something, I mean, it's no different than something that they do come out against. With like, Let's say if there's something relative to uh, what our salaries are going to be. They come out against legislation like that in a heartbeat. There's no reason why oh, yeah. they can't come out and say, look, guys, you guys are full of shit. Marijuana and prohibition is wrong, period. It doesn't do anything to help society. It's not necessary to protect society. We don't need it to protect society. Let, and it also cures. And helps people in so many ways that uh, that also make our jobs better, where we can focus on the real crime that's going on. They don't do that politically, and that's wrong in my opinion. And I think anybody who's been in law enforcement uh, should tell them that as well, because what am I saying that's wrong or that's in violation of your oath? I don't think I'm saying anything that's wrong with that's that. Right. You know, and and and, it's, and we're, we should be more focused on harm reduction. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. and, and legislation that allows harm reduction, you know, et cetera. So, you know, Tom, I, I had a well, thought and, and, as you were talking real quick because we're getting down to the end of the show. Is I would like to, I'm, you know, I'm doing a show every day this week relative to my visit to Colorado and in support of Hemp History Week and, and all these other aspects. And it keeps developing. And I'd like to invite you back next Sunday to do a part two to continue to get into the nuts and bolts of law enforcement uh, what medical is all about, because you have the technical knowledge to talk about this. And I'd like you to come back next week and do a part two. Would you uh, Would you be happy to do that? Uh, yeah, sure. I don't have anything on my schedule. Uh, I'd be happy to do it. Fantastic. And and we only have about a minute left, and, and you know, we're on a clock here, unfortunately, and I want to thank you for coming in and for coming back, because I do want to continue to uh, coffee Party Radio coming at you. I take liberty with my coffee. Uh, we're we're going to be at you seven days a week this week. Uh, we, we we also have a cup of Joe. We have lunch with Loudon, and we have politics done right. And it's Hemp History Week, and I'm looking looking forward to be talking to everybody this week. Thanks for joining me. Everybody have a fantastic day. I'm out.